Have you ever had a nightmare? Of course you have. I mean, we all, we've all had it, right? Some of you are like, I had one last night or I had one this week. In fact, nightmares are one of those interesting things. That you don't have to be very old to have your first nightmare. I've got a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old. They've all had many nightmares, okay? Um, and, and what's interesting also is nightmares are, well, there's only, a, at the end of the day, there's like five or six major types of nightmares. And I'm, I'll just tell you them right now because you, you've probably had one or all of these. Uh, one very common, you don't have to raise your hand, but one very common nightmare is to lose your teeth, I don't know if you knew that. So some of you are laughing. The rest of you are like, I've had that nightmare. Uh, that, that nightmare, uh, it means, it, it, they think it means something like, uh, I feel powerless, I feel vulnerable, I, I feel exposed. Uh, that, that's a common one. Here's another one, you're falling. We've all had that nightmare, right? Uh, another one would be, uh, something is chasing you. I actually had a guy call me one time. He said, hey, there's a gorilla with a pack of cigarettes chasing me in my dreams. What does it mean? I go, I have no idea. <laughs> that, but, you know, that, that, you, well, that's an interesting thought, okay? Uh, another very, very common one is you are late to something or you're unprepared for something, Right? Uh, another very, very common one is that you find yourself naked or poorly dressed in a public place, right? These are all kind of common nightmares. And this helped me understand because I've, since I planned this church, I've had the same nightmare, not exactly the same nightmare, but similar. And it always has to do with me not being ready to come up and speak here. Always. It's like, well, the pr- and it's different every time, right? Like the dreams are and you look back and you go, it didn't make sense, but the printer wasn't working. I couldn't find my booklet. You know, I didn't have time this week. We, the guest speaker canceled last minute, whatever it is. And, and here I am, right? That's my nightmare. Um, but it's interesting because if you turn to Daniel chapter 2, it's going to start with the nightmare of, of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, there's a lot of dreams uh, in the book of Daniel. And it's interesting because Americans in dreams, we don't think much about dreams. It's like, well, you know, I mean, how important could they be? We only do it for eight hours every day, you know. And it's, it's, it's probably, Americans also think this, it's probably random. It's like, well, it's definitely not random. You create a world in which you live in. It takes a lot of thought and everything, you know. I mean, it, it, and you know that, you know that we haven't, thought about this a lot when a movie like Inception comes out, if you guys are familiar with that movie, a couple years ago, decade ago now, that movie became insanely popular. Normally, a good rule is when something becomes insanely popular, it's because it's not been talked about enough. Or it's, it's expressing some kind of truth we've not been paying attention to. So everybody's like really interested in that movie. And then you've got guys like Sigmund Freud, not a Christian, but you know what Sigmund Freud said about dreams? He said he thought in your dreams, you were trying to tell yourself things you didn't want to know. And that's why you kind of do it in image. And well, we don't know all, all that that means, but but, but what we do know is in the Bible, dreams are a big deal. So, I mean, in the book of Genesis alone, there's 10 dreams. Uh, the, the, you, you turn to the, the, you know, the New Testament. The New Testament the book of Matthew basically starts with like four or five dreams. The Magi are dreaming. Joseph alone has three different dreams. Uh, so, so dreams are a big deal in the Bible. And, uh, and they're one of the ways that God speaks to people, especially in the Old, Old Testament. Let, let's look real quickly at uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll show you where this comes from. Here's what it says. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and if you're new, we talked about him a little bit last week, he is a, was a terribly wicked king. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So what we're going to find out in this story and a couple other stories is that God's going to speak to Nebuchadnezzar and, and to other people through dreams. Now you go, well, you know, does God still do that? Well, Maybe to some extent, all right? We don't, we don't really fully know. There's certain people who, because you know, we're afraid to say that God could do anything, we, we kind of say, well, there's only, you know, God only speaks to us through the written word of God. I think that's the primary way that God speaks to us that everything else must submit to. But let's, I mean, let's be honest. God speaks to us through creation, right? I mean, that's Romans 1. It's order, it's beauty. If you ever wonder, why do we call it the universe? Because there's so much unity, there's so much diversity, they didn't know how, it was so overwhelmingly amazing, they called it the universe, and then they said, well, if you're going to go study somewhere, let's call that the university, because that's what you'll study. You know? so, so there's creation, there's your conscience, right? And you know that. Your conscience doesn't always tell you what to do, it tells you what not to do. It's, normal, it's either a voice or a feeling. But everybody kind of agrees, you have this conscience. And, but that's not really a great standard, right? Because 
Well, your conscience can be too sensitive because of how your parents raised you, or it could be, you know, you could sear it because of all the foolish things you did in college, and it's like, well, you know, not as helpful as it could be, right? There's circumstances, but how do you interpret those? Is it an open door? Is it an obstacle? Is it a door? Is it a distraction? Should I do, take this if I, get, if I get the job, do I take this? It's like, who knows? You don't know, right? And, and then that's kind of how dreams fit in. In fact, what you're going to see, the big idea in this story is the dream is no good without the interpretation. And so the reason I'm telling you this is to say, yeah, yes, over Scripture, and, and who knows, because you hear stories, especially talk about world missions, you hear people having dreams, and I don't understand how all that works. But what we do know is that it all comes under, submits to Scripture. This is why, you know, you can't go, I had a dream, I should leave my spouse, you know. It's like you dialed the wrong number, right? Uh, because Scripture clearly speaks against that. And so what we see is, is he has a dream, and then look what it says there. It says that, and this is important to notice, um, it says that he was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, you've had this happen, you know, at least a couple times. You wake up, you're sweating. You can't go back to sleep. Maybe it's that you had a fantasy, and you're kind of embarrassed what you dreamed about. I don't know, but, but something happens in your life, and you're deeply troubled by it, and, and you can't go back to sleep. That's his situation, which it, and this reminds us of something that's important to know, and it's, it's that God often gets people's attention through difficulty, right? And this is Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful guy in the world. God's going to end up getting his attention through difficulty, which, um, you know, think about it. Most people, you know, there's two main ways God can get a hold of somebody, pain or pleasure, but most times it's not pleasure, right? Most people are not like, well, my life is so amazing, and you know, I just bought this house, and I got the dream job, and my kids are healthy, and my life is good. I should thank God. I mean, that, that might be how a Christian now thinks. It's not how a non that doesn't normally lead a non-Christian to Christ, right? But, but you also know that often it's difficult things in a person's life, right? It's like, well, you know, we're going through a divorce, or I'm depressed, or we have debt, or I don't know, there's division in my home, and I need help. Like, just this week, I had a guy in our church, and he said, man, he's telling me, he said, I think I'm getting somewhere with my neighbor. You know, we're trying to reach out to people who are far from God and close to us. And my neighbor, two different times, has come over and asked for help because he and his wife keep fighting. And it's like, you know, yeah, he's having difficulty in a relationship, and so maybe he's a little bit more open to hear the message, right? So it normally, it, it, normally, either if, if it's not going well in their life or something new is happening in their life, they're more open to hear the message. I'm just, humanly speaking, that's true. You know, this is why, you know, it, it's discouraging when you see, like, well, all these millennials are leaving the church, and that's true. But if you read all the studies, like all the Barna studies, what they're saying is we end up getting about half of them back after they have a kid. And it's like, well, you know, because you have a kid and you start realizing, well, now I'm responsible for a whole other human. And, you know, maybe the church meant more to me than I thought. And maybe it's time for me to settle down and stop living so foolishly and selfishly. And so a lot of people come back. And so what I want us to see in this story, and this is so important, is we're going we're to look, the whole book of Daniel, is, I told you this last week, is, is written by a guy in his 80s telling us how to faithfully live in a non-Christian culture. And here's the first thing you got to see. Here's the first principle we learned today, that we need to see where is God working. We need to see where God's working. Now, why do I say that? Because it's like, well, who's going to initiate all of this stuff with Nebuchadnezzar? It's like, it's not going to be Daniel. It's going to be God, right? And God actually can get a hold of people that we think you can't get a hold of, right? I don't know if that's your mother-in-law. I don't know if it's your sister, your, your, your boss, your neighbor. I mean, whoever that is for you, God can get a hold of them. And, and part of what it means when, when you're living, and th this point is not uh, an excuse to be lazy, to not say something, to not evangelize, to not share your faith and have spiritual conversations. It's, it's really to say, and this is a truism, and you, you know this if you've tried to do anything, uh, as you reach out to people, your goal is not to create spiritual interest as much as it is to discover it. Like, I mean, you can try to create it. You know, you can ask good questions. You should. You should share your testimony in a compelling way. That's great. You should talk about the gospel in plain, simple form so people can understand it. But what you're going to find out is, you know, for every, I'm making a number up, but for every 30 people you do, one cares. Or one really cares, or one's really, really interested. And actually, this, this will help you understand the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul goes in any city, he looks for two things. And it's the same two things you should look for. Interest and influence. 
That's what he does. It's like, you wonder, like, well, why does the Apostle Paul keep going to places and going, I appeal to Caesar? It's like, if you understand the context, it's like, Paul, don't do that. If you don't do that, you'll probably not end up in jail, you won't go to Rome, your head won't be cut off. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Well, why? Because he loved to be in front of people who were very influential and hoped they would also be very spiritually interested. And so this is what we begin to see. Now, I want you to see what happens in verse 2. As we go on, we see Daniel chapter 2, verse 2 says this, then the king, because he has this terrible dream, he commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. So he does, you know, so something bad happens in his life, something difficult happens in his life, and so he brings the leaders and experts of his day to try to solve his problems, right? Which is like, you know, it's kind of what we do. It's like, you know, you start feeling sick or you're worried about yourself or, I don't know, you have some kind of rash and you go on WebMD. Terrible idea, right? For, for those of us who have no medical training, right? All of a sudden, you're scared out of your mind, right? Uh, or, or, or we go to Google, or these aren't bad things, but this is kind of what we do, right? He, they had magicians and sorcerers and all that kind of stuff. He calls the palace payroll up. We, we basically instead were like, okay, is there a podcast I can listen to? Is there a best-selling book I can read? Is there an expert um, you know, I can talk to? You know, can I Google it? So he begins to do this, and, and what's interesting is if you look at who he pulls in, he pulls in the magicians and the sorcerers, all of these people have to do with t- being able to tell the future. Which is interesting because even this last week, last Sunday in the New York Times, because again, we read the Bible and we go, isn't that so silly, magicians and sorcerers and trying to tell the future? And Well, there was an article in Sunday's edition of the New York Times all about the, um, the resurgence of astrology and horoscopes among millennials. That it's, it's actually becoming a multi, multi-million, you can go read the article, and it's basically about this, this guru and this lady who's, who, um, she's helping people understand astrology and horoscopes so they can better understand themselves which sounds very much like part of the selfish project of American millennials to be obsessed with the self, and if there's another tool for me to be more obsessed with myself with, then that's great. You know, but, but we're all, I mean, don't we all kind of want to know the future? Like, have you ever opened up a fortune cookie and you go, maybe. <laughs> I, maybe, all right? I mean, there's, there's kind of that desire in us to know the future. Well, I want you to see what happens in verse three. So he continues on, and in verse three, it says this. Um, And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Now, you're going to see these uh, always together, the dream and the interpretation, the dream and the interpretation. Uh, Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation... You shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honors. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So four different times we're told that he needs both. Now, this is interesting because, you know, when you, when you study these kind of things, there's kind of two camps. It doesn't really affect how you read the passage. But there's some people who think he doesn't, um, or he remembers his dream, but he's testing them to see, you know, do, can you actually tell me my dream and the interpretation? That's, that's about half the people who have studied this read think that. The other half thinks he cannot remember all of his dream, which, again, it's like the movie Inception. That happens all the time, right? If you ever try to tell somebody your dream, you're like, I don't remember how I got here. Like, it's fuzzy. We were, we were at my house, right? You're trying to kind of remember it. So either way, he needs both, though, right? He needs, he needs the dream, and he needs to understand its interpretation. Verse 7 says this. They answered a second time. Let the king tell his servants the dream and show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you, do not make known, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed that speaking, you, you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And here's what we're going to end up seeing that's going to set up the rest of this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar needs to come to a point where he can't answer his own problems. He's not the answer to his own problems. And every other person around him who he thinks can help him is going to end up having to fail him first. You know, this is another thing to realize is that oftentimes, and this is really a sad thing in some ways, but if you put all your trust in the world, then it will fail you when you need it most. And, you know, and there's a couple areas you can think about that. Like, you know, I'll give you one area, and you could probably think of a lot more, but one area is like, you know, I, th I think maybe it's more of the younger generation feels this way, but I certainly feel like medicine, surgery, pills, they can fix anything. Like, you know, it's like, well, you know, I, yeah, I may get sick 20 years from now, but, you know, there'll be a non-invasive outpatient surgery by then. You know, oh yeah, we'll have, you know, I'll have some disease or we'll have, we'll all have some kind of illness, but you know, by then there'll be like an easy pill that we'll all take, right? I mean, do you, I don't know if you ever feel that way, right? And, and, but, and it's really interesting, and I've not done this a lot, but if you've ever been with somebody who actually realizes, nope, there's no medical answers to your problem. You know, I mean, I've, I've actually, on, on a few occasions, been with someone, it's like, here's, you know, I don't know how to say this, but what would end up happening with them is it's like, well, no, you're definitely going to die. And all we have left is to make it as least painful as possible, and we're certainly going to try to do that, but we can no longer help you. That's a really sad place to be in. And we know that happens because it happens to very, very famous people like Steve Jobs. It's like, well, who's Steve Jobs? It's like, well, you know, the most, arguably one of the most creative and powerful men who's lived. You know, it's like, you know, you're using his devices right now. You know, and he got to a place where it's like, yeah, he couldn't do anything. Here's a second area that I think we often look for answers in, and, and it can, it, this is always a tricky thing, right? It helps us to a certain extent, but can't solve all of our problems. It's science. You know, and I'm no expert on science by any, reason, by any means. And, and this is good to know that it's not Christianity versus science. We're not anti-science, right? If, if you fly in planes and use phones and like air conditioning, you're not anti-science, okay? <laughs> you like science, okay? We like science. Um, but um, it's not Christianity versus science. That's how people view it. It's Christianity versus scientism, if you've never heard that, you can read about that. Scientism is a worldview that thinks science explains everything, and science is all that we need, and that's where Christianity is saying, no, they're, they're actually different. And this is where Nietzsche was really helpful. So, so Frederick Nietzsche, you know, not a Christian, great critic of Christianity, but he said he believed it was the Christian worldview that created science. Science is only about 500 years old. And he said, uh, you know, Christianity created uh, science, uh, the, wor the worldview created science because two things had to happen. One, you had to have a commitment to discover the truth at all costs. It still took us like thousands of years to discover science, but, but it's like we were going to go after the truth at all costs. And he said, secondly, there had to be a distinction between the creator and the creation. See, most religions worship the creation. Well, then you can't take a mouse apart if you worship the creation. You get what I'm saying? You, you, you actually have to distance yourself and say God is not in the creation to even discover science. But what science ends up doing, I mean, on a very simple level, you know, is, is that science tells us what things are. Very important. But it doesn't tell us how things should be. It doesn't tell us how we, we should act. And, and a good way to think about it is science can never, though it can do a lot of things for us, and people give their whole lives to it, and it's good, is that it can never answer the questions of a four-year-old. You know, why am I here? Where's everything going? It can't answer the questions that the 30-year-old dying of cancer wants to know. It's like, well, where, where, you know, where'd you come from? Well, nobody times nothing. Well, where's everything headed? Sorry, you're not going to exist anymore after the end of this. It's like, you know, that, that's fun to debate in a philosophy class. It's not fun when you're dying. It's not helpful and it's not true. And so he, he comes to the end of himself. That's, that's, a large, that's a large part of what's happening here. Look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth. In other words, man can't, there are some problems man got himself into, but God has to answer. He says this, 
Um, who can meet the king's demand? For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. It's repeated a second time. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so in response, Nebuchadnezzar gets very angry. Here, look at verse 12. Because of this, the king, remember he was at first worried, he was anxious. He says, but now it's changed. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So, you know, well, why does all this happen? It, it happens because at the end of the day, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's come to an end of himself. He realizes he's not God. He realizes he doesn't have the answers and it makes him incredibly frustrated. And this is gonna lead to an incredible opportunity in Daniel's life. And this is the, the second thing I want us to see is that we need to be willing for God to use us. And because what we're gonna see is in, in these next few verses, and this is why we love Daniel. This is why we've told these stories for a long time. This is why we teach them. You know, they've taught, been taught in Sunday school and they're taught to our kids is because what you're gonna see in these next few verses is incredible. Verse 14, it says this, then Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion, those are words we don't use very often anymore, <laughs> with prudence and discretion, we'll talk about that, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So here's what we see with Daniel, and, th and th this is really... It's like, well, how, you know, what type of people does God use? And that's a, that's a long answer to that question. But here's a real simple way to see it, at least based on this text. God uses people who are awake and alert and aware enough to know what's going on. You know, and it's like, well, it's like that's not the answer you want because you don't really want to be that awake and alert, right? Most of us, it's like, well, you know, most people are like, well, I'd like to eat a lot and drink a lot and watch a lot of TV and sleep a lot. And, and kind of be on my own, I don't know, maybe my social media bubble, but I don't want to be awake and alert because it's hard. It's so, like to be awake and alert, like, well, yeah, you've got to know what's going on in your city, which that means you've got to read the news and you've got to kind of decipher the wheat through the chaff, and that's kind of really hard. And, you know, maybe you even need to know a little bit about history, and that's terrible to read about history. You know, it's what people have done to each other, and that's really, really hard. And then maybe you need to know things about your city, and maybe you even go to places in your city that you don't normally go to, and you don't want to do that because, I don't know, if you saw what went on there, maybe you'd feel like you, it's your city and you'd have to do something, right? And so this is really, really hard because what, what you see is it's like, what's, what's the kind of person that God uses? Well, first, he or she is the kind of person that can see what's going on, rightly. The second thing is the person who's not afraid to say something or says something even though they are afraid, maybe, right? It's like, and, and this is a good thing to know, like, you know, who is the leader in every room? I can tell you, it doesn't matter their title, it doesn't matter what chair they sit in, it doesn't, their position, whatever. The leader in the room is the person who sees the situation the clearest and speaks the most compellingly. That is the leader. That, that's who that is. And so what we see in Daniel is he's able to see things rightly and then speak clearly. Now, this is so important, right? Because we, if, if there was ever a cultural moment, and there's probably been other moments, but this is certainly a cultural moment for us where people need to see things and say things when they see them. Because, I mean, you know, to talk about things that we shouldn't talk about, you know, think about Jeffrey Epstein or Harvey Weinstein, okay? Uh, you think about those guys, and I'm not dealing with this at a political level or even at the scandalous level or something like that, but, but you think, what are both those stories about? You know, I know they're about sexual perversion of all sorts, and I'm not, I'm not even talking necessarily about that. We're, the reason we're still talking about them, the reason there's memes about them, the reason um, that everybody in Hollywood is scared um, is because everybody knew, right? That's what that's about. It's like, well, well, not everybody, but lots of people. It's like, well, who knew about Epstein? It's like, well, a lot of people. 
You know, and who said nothing? Well, a lot of people. And who knew about Weinstein? Well, even more. You know, and who said nothing? Well, most people said nothing. Right? And then some were even worse than saying nothing. It's like, well, you didn't just say nothing. That'd be pretty bad. But you actually were complicit in kind of making sure, you know, wiping it under the carpet. And, right? And so if you, if you saw this this last week, and I'm guessing most of you did because it's got like 30 million views now, if you saw what Ricky Gervais did. Ricky Gervais is a comedian. He's a vehement atheist. But that doesn't mean that he's not made in God's image and can't get some things very right. Um, but what was interesting is if you watch his, and I recommend that you do, although it's pretty, pretty intense, but if, you, but if you watch his Golden Globes intro, I've never, I mean, I don't know the last time I've seen something quite like it. What he does, and this is actually, this is good to know because this is what you can, your own version of this, this is what you can be like if you are willing to do these things, is he gets up in front of all of Hollywood on, one of, on their biggest night of the year, and he starts the night off by telling them the truth about themselves. And, and all he does for eight straight minutes is say, let me tell you everything that I see and let me tell you what it really means. And let me tell you how you're at fault in some of these things. And, let it, and, let, and, 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 and by the way, that's what it, the best comedians, and this is why you know, people love comedians. And, and this is interesting too because comedians are no longer allowed. Most comedians like Chris Rock and those guys, they don't go to college campuses anymore. Joe Rogan, none of those guys go to college campuses anymore. And that's because you can't tell the truth on the college camps anymore. Right? Because what a comedian does is, and this is what you love, the best comedian, the moment you're laughing the most at a comedian, you're saying two things in your, inside of yourself. You're going, I can't believe he said that out loud. And I can't believe he saw it. Like, it's something that I kind of saw but couldn't quite articulate. And he or she had the boldness to talk about it publicly and give it a name, and I can't believe it. And that's part of the shock, the awe, and the laughter of comedy. That's what Ricky Gervais is. He's a comedian. But, but we, need, we need to sit. Now you go, well, where do you get the power and motivation to say things? Because in part of it's like, well, when could, should you say things? Well, let's start there. When should you say things? It's like, well, the, the simple answer to that is almost never. <laughs> because most things you don't need to speak into. And that's what's hard about it. It's like most things are working quite fine, and you know, you'll probably make them worse if you talk. You know, it's like that's a hard thing. Right? But that's, lots of things are going well, and you shouldn't be saying anything. Right? Too many people are saying too many things. It's too much noise. But when do you say something? It's like, well, every once in a while, you really need to say something. Well, here's how you think about it. According to this text, uh, people are in danger, and, and, and the people who need help don't have a voice. Do you see that? It's like, well, you know, there's people in danger, the wise men, including, including himself, and they don't have a voice. They don't have access to Nebuchadnezzar. They don't, right? And so it's like, that would be a good litmus test of when should you say something that you're not saying? It would be um, when somebody's in danger who has no voice. That's at least the start. So, you know, for example, you know, I try to, I want to be more faithful in this, but I try to talk a lot, speak up for, care for the unborn. Never once in a while, and it doesn't mean that we're not compassionate on people who've had abortions, and that's a whole other, there's the grace of God, and there's forgiveness, and, but it's like, why, why do I talk about that a lot? Well, one reason would be because I'm probably not aware and alert and awake enough to a lot of other issues. That would probably be one way. This is an issue I am aware and awake and alert to. But then you think, well, is there anybody that's invisible that nobody can see, basically? Yeah, the unborn. Is there anybody who could never, ever be heard? Yeah, their name is the unborn. So that's one reason that the church has always cared for the unborn. But, you know, there's the immigrant, right? There's the refugee, there's the homeless, there's the widow, there's the... I get it. There's a bunch of people that need to have uh, people who have a voice speak up for them. So, now, where do you get the motivation for this? Because, you know, the reason that you don't speak up, it's like very simple why you don't speak up. It's not, it takes about two seconds to think about it. It's like, because well, you don't want to stand out. You know, because it's a lot safer in most situations to just go and do what everybody else is doing. But every once in, every once in a while, you have, to, you have to actually say, I want to do this. Now, where do you get the power to do this? Because 
you know, Christians are not the only ones who've done this, but Christians have done this. Christians, faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, devoted Christians have normally said something, or some of them have, when something needs to be said, or they stayed when everybody left. It's like, well, why do you do this? It's because that's what Jesus Christ did for us. You know, it's like, well, you know, we, were, we had no voice with God, and he was God's son. We, we were enslaved to Satan and sin, and he did something about that when we couldn't. That's where we get the power and motivation. Now, now how about on a real personal level? Because, you know, what I was talking about there is, you know, you may have to say something at work sometime, right? You may, you may have to say something in our, in our city or in our society. I'm talking about bigger moments, but how about on a, like a real personal level? How do you know when you need to say something? Well, you, a good rule is if you're becoming um, resentful or bitter or critical, that's the way your conscience is telling you, you you're not saying everything that needs to be said. And that can happen in marriage, that can happen in family, that can happen at work. Uh, or you're having imaginary conversations with the person in which you win and they bow down to you, right? Not that we ever have any of those thoughts, right? But that, that would be another good sign of like, I probably, I probably need to say something. And, and it's good to, and this is good to know too, is that people, uh, this is unanimous um, in all the studies, that at the end of people's lives, they always regret more what they failed to say than what they said. You know, now in the short term, we regret it, right? Like angry you came out, grumpy you came out, you know, and you said something and it, well, you shouldn't have said it and not, you know, you're still talking about it years later, okay? But, but a lot, you, you know, you, hey, your dad died. Do you regret what you said or what you didn't say? What you didn't say. That's, that's how that works. And so that's a good thing to know. So, so he does it, but then do you see what it says, how he does it? He does it with prudence and discretion, right? Those are words we don't use anymore, but they're helpful words. It basically means um, wisdom and self-control. And good, it's something like good judgment, common sense, sanctified. You know, it's like, well, how, how do you do it when you have to speak up? Well, you know, he does it face to face. That's always helpful. He's not, it's not a Facebook message. You know, it's not a text. It, it's a it's a face to face conversation. You know, and, and I've been told before, timing, tone, and tact are really helpful. You know, it's like, you know, when you have a face to face conversation, well, how, well, how about your timing, right? What mood or is everybody in? Is this the best time to have? Are the kids running around acting crazy? When's the best time to have this conversation? Uh, tone, what's the best way to say it? Tact, or what's the best tone to say it in tact? What's the best way to say it? Um, but then what he does here is he asks questions, and that's really helpful, you know? It's like, you know, he, a good question to ask, it's not the only question, but a good question to ask, like, you know, say somebody's, I'm making an example up here, but, so I don't know, somebody's late to group, or doesn't come to your community group, but, you know, once a month, you know, and you're in a community group, and you take it pretty seriously, and so, you know, you're pretty, I don't know, maybe you're a little upset about it. Maybe you think, well, they don't take it seriously, or, you know, it's not a priority for them, or they, whatever you think. A helpful question to start with is always, hey, can you help me understand? Because it's a, very, it's, it's a question, it's humble, and it says, it says I'm not angry. I've kind of had to deal with myself, I'm not, but, but I, I'm asking this in a way because I actually, I think there are answers, and I want to learn, I want to humble myself, and I want to understand so Daniel, again, he's so, there's a lot of wisdom. Wisdom's a, a main characteristic of Daniel in this book. He does that. And I want you to see what happens next. Because as, as he makes those decisions, verse 17, here's what it says. Then Daniel went to his house and made this matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions. So, you know, it's impossible for me to preach through any passage of scripture and not talk about community because it's everywhere, right? But here's Daniel, and he's not living his Christian life alone, and he's not in isolation, uh, instead, he ends up running home, and he ends up hanging out. This is his DNA group. You know, where do we get that DNA group from? Book of Daniel. It's right here, okay? <laughs> we, we have, uh, he's got three men in his life who he has deep, close relationships to, who he goes to when things get tough. Isn't that great? And he's able to ask, he's able to ask questions of them. In fact, I want you to see what happens in verse 18. And I think if we were to do 
this, um, what, what it says here in verse 18, I think, I think our marriages would be stronger, I think our families would be stronger, I think our relationships would be stronger. Um, let me just read what it says. He says this. Uh, this is what Daniel does. So, so he's, he's about to make a big decision. He's about to go before the king. He goes into community in verse 18. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he goes to his friends and he tells them what he needs from them. Isn't that an amazing idea? You know, then that's, and, you know, that would be a great thing for marriages. And, but it's really, really hard because, you know, you're going to talk to your spouse about, you know, what you want from him or her in marriage. And then you realize you don't really know. You know, and you kind of poorly tell him or her what you want. And, and it's always kind of a dangerous thing. It's like, well, what do I, what would, what would be helpful? What could I need from you? Right? And then they have to say, well, you know, would I be willing to do this? And maybe I wouldn't be, right? And they, but this is a really, really helpful thing. It's like, you know, so, so I don't know, hey, you go, to, you go to your community group, hey, I'm going to be going to the hospital. And it would actually be really, really helpful if you guys would come visit me because I'm going to be lonely in there. Right? We're always afraid to say that. Why are we afraid to say that? Because it's like, well, if you visit me, then I got to go visit you, right? <laughs> right? Isn't that, if I ask you to cook a meal, then, then, you know, or if you cook a meal, maybe I don't even ask you to cook a meal, and you cook a meal when I'm sick, it's like, well, thanks for giving me a to do list, right? Because now I got to cook you a meal when you're sick, right? And that's interesting because we, we, I mean, humans are incredibly good at knowing exactly what we owe other people. We keep track of that very, very, we're very on top of that. And so we don't like that a lot of times. We don't like to ask for things. We don't like to, to say, this is what I need. But that's actually what, well, welcome to community. That's what people do. And so in this situation, and this is Sunday's exactly what you need to do. You need to go to someone and say, hey, look, there's some big things going on in my life, in my marriage, in my family, in my career. Who knows, right? I'm going on a mission trip. I don't know. And, and I, one of the things I would just ask you is, would you consistently pray for me, right? I mean, I've seen that before. I've seen people who they go on the mission field, and one of the things they try to build, not just a financial support team, they try to build a prayer team. Here's what I need. So he goes to them. He asks them for prayer. And then look what happens in verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. This is awesome. What, what we see here is that Daniel is trusting and resting in God. Well, how do we know that? He's able to go to sleep that night. Isn't that interesting? So, so dreams are kind of showing up again and again and again, right? One of the ways, you know, it's like, well, how do you humble yourself? Because the Bible talks about, you know, humble yourself, and that, which, means, which means you can, right, to some extent, whatever it means. There's probably, you know, 20 ways to humble yourself, but there's, there, you're at least told to humble yourself, so you, you know you can do it. How do you do that? Well, one way is you humble yourself by sleeping, right? I mean, because sleeping basically says, you know, I'm not running the world, and so I'm going to have to be unconscious for eight hours today, right? <laughs> I mean, that's basically, you can think about that. It's like, well, you'll be basically, if you're, if you're a normal person who sleeps a normal amount of time, well, congratulations, you'll be unconscious a third of your life. But there's a humility in that. It's like what you're saying when you go to sleep is, you know, I can't run the world. My day's got to end. I, I can't do everything, right? And, and, and sleep, by the way, is a euphemism for death, right? That's why Paul will say those who have fallen asleep, he's talking about people who've died. In other words, what sleep is to your day, death is to your life. It says, well, there's an end. I can't do everything. I want to be found faithful, and then I'm going to rest in God. And so that, this is what he does. He rests, the Lord, gives him a, the Lord gives him a vision, and verse 20, he doesn't forget God, right? A lot of people, we've talked about this before. God does something good, God gives them what they want, God gets them out of trouble, and they forget about God pretty quickly, but not him. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, and, and you can read, as we read this, you're just going to realize this young man knew God. It's not a shallow, you know, God's my father, which that's a, that can be a deep idea, but 
God loves me, you know. It's not, it's not a shallow view of God. It's a very deep view of God. Here's what it says. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. And then what we see here is he believes that God is actively involved in our lives. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In fact, the main message of Daniel is really God's in control of those who are in control. That's the main message. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. I won't go into this for sake of time, but, but what you see there is you see a lot of humility on his part, right? It's like, well, you know, humility is going to be another theme we'll look at a lot here in, in the weeks to come. But, you know, humility starts with, man, I have a really big view of God, and that's what Daniel has. And then, you know, humility is, is, not, humility is not going, you know, I'm not smart when you are smart, right? Or I'm not good at sales when you are, or I can't make money when you can't, whatever it is. You know, I'm not relational when you are. It's like, whatever. That's not what, that's not what humility is. Humility is realizing everything that I have is a gift from God. And the things that have really made me who I am, you know, I had very little to do with, right? Like we've talked about this before. You had nothing to do with your IQ. You had nothing to do with who your parents would be. It's like, well, done. That, that's already set most of the trajectory for your life. So it's a very humbling reality. And so here's, we're going to lead to the third thing, and this is how this works. You know, first you've got to say, where's God working? And you've got to look around and be awake and alert. Secondly, you've got to say, God, will you use me? And then third, and this is so simple, this is what the rest of the story is about. We need to bring God's word to people. That's what a Christian does. Hopefully in compelling ways, in winsome ways, we bring God's word to all types of people. And I want you to see this. Here's what happened. He goes to the king. He finally gets his opportunity. He's prayed about it. He's been in community. This is, this is how we share Christ with others. He says this, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great aim, image. He, what he's saying to the king is, is, you're not the center of history. You're watching history. You're not creating history as much as you're a spectator in it. He says this, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And then he's going to, and we're not going to get too into this dream here, okay? I've seen, you know, I've seen four-part sermon series on this dream, okay? We're not going to go super deep into it, but I want want you to understand the main ideas of it. What you're going to see is, you're going to see four kingdoms talked about. And you can think of the Olympics. It's gold, silver, bronze, and then iron, Okay? Uh, those are going to be the four kingdoms he's going to talk about, and then he's going to talk about a stone. I want you to follow along. This is the dream. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest, arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, so there's the three, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out, of, cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It's like, no wonder he, Nebuchadnezzar was confused, right? It's like, what does this all mean? Well, let me just try to unpack it a little bit for you. We know from this, you know, from the way that it's going to end up being interpreted, and the way that the church has understood this, this um, dream, the, the, they represent four kingdoms or empires, right? So, the, and he's going to say this. The golden head is Babylon, so that's Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, then he's going to say, hey, the silver, that's the Persian empire, and that's going to, that's going to end up coming in, in Daniel's lifetime. And then he's going to say, okay, the bronze, it says it's going to reign over the whole earth. That was the Greek empire, right? 
And, and if you don't know, Alexander the Great, what an interesting character he was. Alexander the Great in his 20s, this is a famous story about Alexander the Great, he wept in his 20s because there was no more land for him to conquer. You, know, you imagine, what's the average person doing in their 20s? Should I go to grad school? Should I move out of my mom's basement? You know? <laughs> Alexander the Great was conquering the known world while most people were figuring out if they should go to grad school. Pretty amazing thought. So, that, so then, you know, there's Alexander the Great, and then there was the Roman Empire, right? And that's the iron, right? And the iron mixing with the clay is that they, it could not withstand because it didn't have the moral fortitude, right? What collapses often empires is not just hostility or warfare from without, but moral corruption from within, okay? So that, that's basically it. But then it says, and it's very, very interesting, it's going to say that during the time of the iron empire, God will establish his kingdom. I want you to see this. I want you to see all this. All right, here it is, verse 36. This was the dream, now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given kingdom and power and might and glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So he tells them that. And by the way, this is a good thing to notice, that when you share the gospel with people, you don't start with their sinfulness, you start with their dignity and their honor of being created. And we forget that a lot, right? The gospel is creation, sinfulness, Christ, response. So often we, we forget about talking about how, yeah, God created you. You were made on purpose, for a purpose. We kind of forget that whole part of the gospel. And we go just to your sinful. It's like, well, t- there's more to me than just that. So you have to have a kind of a thicker view of the gospel. Here, verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Again, that's the Persian Empire. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, that's the Greek Empire. Uh, which shall rule over all the earth. Verse 40. <clears throat> and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. So he's saying, he's, he's warning him. This is the second thing we tell people, right? You're, God made you in, your, in, his, in his image. You have value, dignity, worth. And then the second thing we tell, tell him is, hey, you're trying to build your own kingdom and it's not going to last. Right? It's like, it's the career kingdom. It's the family kingdom. It's the finance kingdom. It's the social media kingdom. I don't know what it is. But it's not, it's not going to ultimately last. And so he says this. There shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So I was explaining all this to you guys. Verse 43. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And then verse 44, in those days, in the days of those kings, what, the kings of the iron empire. When was that? The Roman empire. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. When did Jesus Christ come to set up his kingdom? During the Roman empire. Right? I mean, what is the first thing Jesus does as he comes? It's the Roman empire. He comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel, right? He establishes kingdom. We, we talked about this when we went through the parables. The kingdom, it, it comes gradually and it grows. That's, that's how the kingdom works. It comes gradually and it grows. Here's what it says. The kingdom shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Here's, without getting too much in the weeds, here's the whole point of this. Is we, and this is a big idea in the Bible, is that God knows the future, God knows everything that's going to happen. I mean, that's what it means to be God, right? It means uh, God knows everything, so God must know the future. Like, you know, and this is a helpful thing. Like, when you think of what I'm about to tell you, when you think about things like this, it, I feel like it almost make, feels like your soul is expanding because as, as you talk about the character of God. But think about it this way. God's knowledge is comprehensive, immediate, and does not deteriorate. Those are the theological categories for God's knowledge. 
So it's like, you know, it's immediate. Or let's start with comprehensive. God knows everything, right? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? Right? That's, a, that's kind of an interesting thought. Um, because God, God does, he doesn't even need to think about it. It happens immediately, right? So you could ask him any question and he would know immediately and then it does not deteriorate. And that means, you know, he doesn't forget. He doesn't get old and can't remember, right? So we have God, and, and what we see again and again, about a fourth of the Bible is what's called predictive prophecy. And, and the book of Daniel is a large part of this. And it's one of the things, and this is helpful to know because every once in a while someone is going to say, well, what's unique about Christianity? What's unique about Jesus? And well, there's a lot of answers to that question, but you know, there's three things that if you had to boil it down and say, what are the three things that makes Jesus unique? You'd have to say his worldwide impact on history. That would make, that would, I mean, AD, BC, okay, we divide history on his birthday, it's a pretty big impact, and that's just the beginning of it. You could say his resurrection, and we've talked about that, we talk about that at length every Easter. But the third is his fulfillment of predictive prophecy, right? It's like, well, you know, you have to be born of a virgin. It's like, well, that narrows it down, right? Pretty, pretty much. And then also, you know, he has to be um, born in Bethlehem. Uh, he has to start his ministry in Galilee, and he has to be crucified. Those are just four of the prophecies about him. Well, you know, there's only one person who could fulfill all four of those. And they're all things that you can't plan. You can't plan your birth, right? You can't, you can't plan those kind of things. And so what we begin to see is he does these things, and then look at verse 40, 45. And as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king... What shall be after this? The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. I love how confident Daniel is at the end about God's word, right? Because what normally happens in most people is they say, you know, when you, when you bring God's word to them, when you bring God's word to a non-Christian, they're going to want, or Christians do the same thing, they're going to want to say, that's for you, not for me. If you knew my genetics, if you knew my background, if you knew my family, if you knew what I was stressed about, if you knew my financial situation, if you knew what happened to me when I was a kid, if you knew my unique temptations, then you would realize it doesn't apply to me. You know, and a really humbling but helpful question to ask is, what would this verse mean if you never existed? What would this verse mean if you did not exist on earth? That's what it means. It's not dependent on you for the interpretation. And so Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with the, sh the sureness of God's word, the sureness that his kingdom will not last forever, the sureness that he will die, the sureness that he is not God, the sureness that God knows the future. And so here's how he responds. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel. So he doesn't fully get it. This will, you'll see this more next week. And he commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him, to Daniel. So he doesn't get it. But he gets some things. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And then we really see Daniel's character in verse 49 as it closes out. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. We see his character because it's like, you know, how, what's one way to test people's character? Um, how do you treat those who you don't have to treat well? How, how do you treat those who are now below you? Which is what, what's happening in this situation. He goes back. And, and thus ends the longest, I believe it's the longest chapter in the book of Daniel, and the chapter on Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And, and I told you, he's really his nightmare. I told you that you know, there, there's many dreams in the Bible, but this is interesting. There's only one dream in the Bible, one nightmare in the Bible, same, it's the same thing, by a woman. And don't say it out loud, but I wonder if you think, what's the one, who's the one woman in Scripture who has a dream that needs to be interpreted? Pilate's wife. 
If you remember the story, Jesus, at the very end of his life, you know, part of the story of Jesus is that he ends up having an unjust trial because he's sinless, guiltless, righteous. But at the end of his life, he's before Pontius Pilate. You know, you've heard of this. You've read this. You've seen this. And in Matthew 27, it says that Pilate's wife had a nightmare. And she's so startled by it that she, she wakes up and she runs to Pilate. And she says, do nothing to this man, for he is righteous. And it shakes Pilate so much that he washes his hands of, of him and says, I'm guiltless of this blood. But, but just like all other dreams in Scripture, it needs to be interpreted. It's like, well, what does it mean that Jesus Christ was righteous? Why would he go to the cross? It's like, well, because when you read this story, let's just be honest, we're Nebuchadnezzar, right? We've come to the end of ourselves, and when we really need the answers to life, when we need the answers of forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, eternal security, all the things the gospel gives us, there's nowhere else we can look and find them, right? And we're very much like Nebuchadnezzar. We're building our own kingdom. And well, maybe we don't know it, and maybe we think it's going to last, and who knows what we think. And then we're reminded, wait, what did Jesus Christ come to do? Jesus Christ came to establish his kingdom. That's why, but no one really saw it, right? The whole image in that story is it's a stone. It's like, well, what's the least appealing thing of, of iron, silver, bronze, and gold? What's less appealing than all this? A stone. And that, we were told that, right? It's like no one would be attracted to him. No one would think anything of it. But Jesus Christ comes and he does three things. He lives the life that we cannot live. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. And this is the amazing thing. Like Daniel, although he's the better Daniel, at the, after his victory, after his defeat, or after he defeated Satan, sin, and death, he looks back and he welcomes us to come with him. Right? And the way you do that is through repentance and faith. Right? Repent, repent basically means I'm going to think differently. That's what repent means. It means I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to believe what the Bible says, not what my culture says. And believe means I'm going to welcome and embrace Jesus Christ as the most important person in my life. And when we begin to do that, then we become the type of people who can look around, we're aware of what God's doing, and we have the courage by the grace of God to speak. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now in Jesus' name. We thank you for the example of Daniel. He was a sinner, but he was a great man, and we thank you for his faith. Lord, we thank you. We ask the same things. We ask that we would see where you're working, Lord. Give us the eyes to see, Lord. If we'd, if we'd pray and we'd open up our eyes, we'd probably be a lot more aware that you're working among our coworkers and our classmates and our family and our friends and our neighbors and, you know, I don't know, the person who checks us in at the gym. It's like you're, you're working, uh, you know, uh, in all of those environments and areas, Lord. And just, just we, I pray that we would notice it. I pray that as a church we'd be asking, would you use us, Lord? Would you let us see and speak? And then, and then finally, Lord, would, you just, would we be faithful to bring your word to all types of people? We pray this in your name. Amen.